One is, does it make it easier or harder to live, work, and play in Boulder? Number two is, does it promote racial equity and social justice? And number three is, does it address the climate emergency? Hello, Boulder and the wider world. This is the Sharing Boulder podcast. My name is Philip Ogren, and for episode 12, I sat down with Dan Williams in his backyard to talk about his candidacy for Boulder City Council. This fall, the city of Boulder will be electing five representatives to city council. Boulder Coalition, a consortium of several progressive organizations, including Open Boulder, Boulder Progressives, and United Campus Workers Colorado, have endorsed four candidates, including Dan, Nicole Spear, Matt Benjamin, and Lauren Fulkerts. Dan's campaign is gearing up for a busy election season. He has qualified for the city election matching funds and has boxes of yard signs and campaign stickers in his garage. Despite the swirl of new activity in his life, he made time to sit down for a long conversation to discuss his values and what he hopes to accomplish on city council. I appreciate the calm and thoughtful way that he discusses the issues without trying to soften or downplay the urgency of the problems we face. We hope you enjoyed this episode with Dan Williams. Dan, uh, thank you so much for uh, coming on Sharing Boulder. I uh, really appreciate it. It means a lot to, to me and David. Um, tell us about yourself. Yeah, so I moved to Boulder about 15 years ago. I had been in Washington, D.C. for a while, first doing public policy work at the federal government, and then I became a lawyer. Uh, I had kids at the time who were five and seven. I was sort of working all the time at a D.C. law firm and um, just knew I had to get out and be somewhere where I could enjoy nature, enjoy raising my kids, and just have a, a nicer life. And looked around at a few different places and really fell in love with Colorado and with Boulder, so nice. I uh, settled here. So you actually just sort of like looked on the map, you've been a few, been around and you, you kind of thought this, this, this place would be, this would work for me. I did. I had friends from law school, so I went to Georgetown and people from there ended up sort of all over and yeah. I looked around and talked with people about where it would be fun to live and where I could practice law and have a much more balanced lifestyle. And this, this rose pretty quickly to the top. That's so cool to have such a, like a deliberate approach to ending up where you went. Yeah. <laughs> because uh, I started, I'm sort of here by accident, but anyways. Um, so what, what do you do career-wise right now? Yeah, so I'm a lawyer at a law firm in town called Hutchinson Black & Cook. I'm a litigator, so I work on cases that are either heading towards trial or in trial, or uh, so basically disputes. Okay. I do a very a broad range of cases, so I do civil rights cases, I do cases for victims of sexual assault, uh, Title IX cases, and I also do commercial and business cases, so either businesses suing each other or individuals suing businesses, that sort of thing. So I happen to know about at least two cases you've litigated. One was the Bedrooms Are for People uh, fiasco last fall, and the other was uh, 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 a victim of Jeffrey Epstein. Is, is that right? right? Yeah. yeah. No, 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 I'm sorry, about... of Harvey Weinstein. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm yeah. sorry. Harvey Weinstein. It's like, which victim? Okay. Right. Uh, so the which there's such different cases. Where, no, I know. It's start. like it's not really a nice a nice segue. I yeah. Guess, but uh, 
Yeah, maybe just, but, yeah. but go ahead and just yeah, tell us about Yeah, let's talk about, about the Veterans case. So sure. that, you know, I, I had signed their petition early on in the summer. Um, you know, it was during COVID and someone biked up to my house with a clipboard and talked with me about it from six feet away and wow. handed me a sterile pen. I really thought it was great what Bedrooms was trying to do. Uh, I got a phone call in late July from one of the Bedrooms organizers telling me something I just thought couldn't be right, which is the city had told them they needed to get a certain number of signatures by mid-August, and then in July they were told, actually, no, you needed to get those signatures in June. So they were right on track doing what they'd been instructed to do, but then the city said, you know, no, you actually had to submit your petition previously. And that just seemed crazy. It seemed like something out of a Kafka novel. <laughs> so I was like, all right, you know, I'll, I'll help you out. I'll take your case. Uh, so we ended up filing a lawsuit against the city. Um, and uh, it was a tough issue for the court, you know, which is whether if a city administrator gets the law wrong, can the city be held to the promise it made? And there was no question that the city had made the promise or that they got it wrong. The only question is whether they'd be held responsible for what they'd done. And the judge said he didn't have the authority to do that. The district judge. The district judge, yeah. right. So we took it up to the Supreme Court, and they initially said they'd hear the case, and we wrote up all the papers and got it ready for them. And then I think they looked at it and decided it was just too complicated to do right before the election and didn't take the case. So as it worked out, Bedrooms was not on the ballot in 2020. Uh, you know, I'm pleased to see they're back on the ballot for 2021, and I think that's going to be a big issue. Cool. Well, I'm a election. big supporter of Bedrooms Are For People. I, I volunteer and help with the petition campaign this summer. And uh, so really appreciate the hard work that you did to help um, last year, even though it was sort of for naught. But right. um, uh, it, I, think, I think in a lot of ways it's raised awareness of, um, you know, how important the issue is and how people are resisting it, right? I, I assume there's something about the city council mechanics that um, that I don't know. It just suggests like they really didn't want this on the ballot, and so I mean they probably yeah. could have been flexible with the the organizers, but weren't. No, no, they could have. I mean, it's interesting. The city attorney at the time actually asked that the city council just put it on the ballot because yeah. they got the support that the clerk told them to get. They submitted their signatures by the August deadline, and the council had the authority to put it on the ballot. And, Basically, the city attorney said, look, this is the right thing to do. We yeah. should own up to our word. We should do what we said we would do. Oh. And the council still didn't do it. So did that uh, uh, event have any effect on you in being interested in running for city council? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I hadn't paid that much attention to city council until um, watching what happened with bedrooms and seeing just how unfairly people were treated and... I started watching a lot more closely after that, and yeah, that is one of, you know, that was one of several things that factored in, but I mean, the other is, we're at really a critical juncture for Boulder. I mean, the city has changed a lot, and the way it's changed is it's gotten wealthier and more exclusive and harder and harder for people, even to do what I did 15 years ago, you know, move here with a young family, stretch, get a mortgage, get a house and uh, make this home. And I think there's still time to reverse that. I think 
if we take some bold action now, we can make Boulder a place for all of us. But it's going to take some intentionality and some work. Well, do you want to circle back to the the other uh, the Har Harvey Weinstein yeah, right. case, or do you want to dive into? Housing? No, I'm happy to talk about that. Yeah, so okay. the Harvey Weinstein case was interesting. We were representing uh, someone who had been part of a class action lawsuit, a woman who had been victimized by Harvey Weinstein years ago, uh, and she felt that the lawyers handling the class action weren't looking out for the victims. And what she wanted to do was go to the judge and say, this case should not move forward as a class action. I should get to press my own case wow. because I need counsel who really cares about me. So me and one of my partners, John Clune, took her case. The, uh, the lawyers were perhaps uh, just trying to maximize the amount of payout or something like that and kind of gloss over things? Yeah. Or? I mean, I think the, the most sort of optimistic way to look at it is um, they were doing what they thought would be best for the whole group, but also yield themselves a, a big payout, uh, and they weren't as focused on the individual client. And, you know, my philosophy to lawyering is much more focusing on what each client needs and wants, and I give my advice, but ultimately it's their choice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so um, what did you learn from that experience? I, in terms of... Um, the client, I mean, our client was just a just a wonderful person. One thing that really struck me is her experience with Weinstein had happened decades ago, and it had a profound influence on her life, you know, decades later. And seeing that um, the, the harm that's caused by sexual assault, seeing how it can dominate someone's life for so many years after the fact was just really moving to appreciate and it actually it makes it makes me feel grateful for the opportunity to help someone like that because if i can try to restore a bit of balance through the legal system you know i want to be able to do that for people thank thank you for uh tackling that that's an interesting story any other um litigation stories you want to tell before we move into sort of like city politics Oh, uh, let's jump into city issues. Yeah, sure. Yeah, okay. I have plenty of legal war stories <laughs> yeah. I could tell after doing it for 20 years. Of but, course, yeah, of course. Here I'll cool. bore your audience. Well, um, yeah, so I mean, my front and center for me is always housing. So um, maybe if you could just sort of articulate a positive vision for what Boulder could do to improve access to housing. Right. So, I mean, I, I was saying before, I mean, the problem that I see is people are being shut out, that... Um, people who got here early, you know, got in, they've seen huge appreciation in their property values, and the next generations are being excluded. And that, for me, means, among other things, my own kids who are 20 and 22 and, you know, really wouldn't have a place here. And even if they could get back here, there wouldn't be a strong peer group for them of people who were yeah. going and doing interesting and creative projects as, as young adults in Boulder. So what do we do about it? I think there, there are really two sides to the coin. One is to make the best use of the properties that we have in Boulder. So look, 85% of Boulder is um, single family houses. So in 85% of Boulder, you can't have a duplex, you can't have a triplex. And then we have these occupancy limits, which mean only three unrelated people can live in a house, whether it's 2,000 square feet or 5,000 square feet. I just always like to say when people describe it, 
that's crazy. <laughs> you know? Right. And I think people who aren't from Boulder and hear yeah. about this, I mean, they're shocked. Really, you know? it's there like, are, it's, it's yeah. totally wild. Yeah. Uh, so in terms of making the most of what we have, you know, veterans are for people. It's important for yeah. that to pass this year. I mean, that's the lowest of low hanging fruit and housing one. opportunity. Yep. These are bedrooms that are being heated. These are bedrooms that already exist. This, if you think about the climate crisis and the need to, to live more efficiently, adding a fourth or fifth person to a house is the easiest way to make per person carbon emissions go down. So bedrooms, the other sorts of things we can do with our current housing stock are things like uh, ADUs. So these are, you know, um, granny flats accessory, or- Accessory dwelling units, right, ADUs. Exactly. So. Um, we can we can liberalize the rules for ADUs. Yeah. There was some effort a few years ago on council to do this. There were a lot of compromises made that still made it extremely hard to have an accessory dwelling unit. So in other words, to allow someone else to have an apartment in your house or in a small house in your in your backyard that you build out, um, or someone who could live on the top floor of a garage. Again, low hanging fruit definitely makes sense from a climate emergency perspective, um, there's no reason we shouldn't be doing that. And then, have you ever brought your, your kids back here and said, you know, hey, young adults, uh, there's some extra space back here. You thought about, you know, like sketch out a, a possible ADU in the, in the back? So what we sketched out for the backyard behind me was a, um, a foam pit that never fully got built, but what they wanted to do was ride their bikes and skateboards off this <laughs> ledge and yeah. jump into it. So they started the trenching work uh -huh. that got about, you know, an afternoon in of trenching. They were like, this is hard. Abandoned shaft. <laughs> so if we couldn't get the, you know, the foam pit to work. Yeah, I'm skeptical that okay. uh, the boys are going to build an ADU back here, but maybe someday. <laughs> Priorities change as you grow right. older, They've though. They've gotten a little know? older now. So, yeah. Cool. yeah. Um, well, so uh, one of the, 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 the big complaint about higher occupancy and more efficient use of housing is currently available housing is the cars. What do we do about the cars? Right. Uh, that, that's one, I guess. Um, th there's also some arguments about um, investors coming in and swooping in and, and turning dormifying Boulder, which um, I don't know if we want to go into that or not. It's a, it's a, it's, a, it's such a vacuous argument in my my perspective, but we can. Let's start with that one, and <laughs> yeah. then let's talk okay. about the cars. Yeah, the, the cars. I mean, I think there's something legitimate that there may yeah. well be more cars. On the investor theory, you know, this is something that I think has been made up by people who are living now in fancy yeah. houses that have appreciated a lot, and I don't think there's evidence to support that. And yeah. I was actually having lunch with someone today who was telling me, you know, bought his house decades ago. It's on the hill. He said it just assessed at $3 million. You know, he yeah. has a big, beautiful house on the hill. And the thought that an investor would say, the way I'm going to make money on a $3 million house <laughs> is buy that and have eight college students live in it yeah. is crazy. Yeah, I mean, totally. that's not, that, that's not a, a smart real estate move. Uh, the smart real estate move is to buy houses that need some work fix them up and flip them and sell them as single family houses. There is not evidence that people are buying these now extremely fancy single family houses on the hill and flipping them for to pack them with college yeah. students who, you know, if anything, would lower the property values. I think that's a very compelling argument. I think a nice corollary to that is um, 
the implied assumption that somehow these occupancy restrictions have somehow uh, stagnated housing prices or suppressed them in, in the, the years that we've, they've been in place, which to me is also like patently absurd. Right. I mean, we've tried something and we have a result. And the question is, do we like the result we have? Yeah. And the result pretty clearly doesn't work based yeah. on the housing crisis the city currently has. But the, the second issue, the parking, sure. you know, there, there are trade-offs that we have to make. So if we take the climate emergency seriously, one thing that means is that in, in urban areas like Boulder, we need to have more people living there. And that, that will mean there are more cars. And the question is, are we willing to trade off not always having an empty parking spot in front of our house? in exchange for allowing a 20-something or a 30-something that's just getting their life going and yeah. um, getting their you know feet wet or doing something creative in town or, or working as a teacher? Do we want to have a place for them to live? And if we do, it may mean that we have to walk a little further and really not that much further. We were talking about half a block further to park. So that's a trade-off. It's a trade-off I'm willing to make it's a trade-off. The other thing we get, the benefit that we get, isn't. It's just not. It's not entirely altruistic. It is altruistic, but the other benefit is that we have a uh, a richer community, but not in the dollar sense. We have a community with different kinds of people, with people who are um, musicians and artists and people who you know enliven our spaces. So, yes. Uh, I think if we're being honest about it, it will lead to more cars, and it may mean that we can't always park directly in front of our homes. But the question is, what does it add to a neighborhood to have more people? And in my view, it's it's worth it. Well, I I appreciate that response, and and I'll I will say when I first logged on to the bedrooms are for people website, that was my first reaction was yeah, but what about what about the cars and. Um, uh, I guess I just would just encourage you as if, if we, when you get elected to city council um, to to say you know that if if parking is a problem let's let's do some policy tweaks and imagination around how we can you know improve parking situations or I mean I, I feel like if we are serious about climate change a lot more of us need to get out of our cars and like sell them and trade them in for e-bikes or uh, walk, to, you know, live in 15-minute neighborhoods, and so I mean, like the trend I would love to see is as as we increase the number of people, we actually reduce the number of cars, and I think there's ways of making it more expensive or maybe less convenient or um, uh, lots of possibilities there. So well, I mean, one natural effect of having more people is it actually makes alternatives more viable. So by yeah. that I mean, you know, they've done studies about. How many people have to live in a neighborhood for the neighborhood to support a thriving coffee shop or a little yeah. grocery store or somewhere where you can and would want to walk to? Yeah. You need you need some amount of uh, critical mass to make yeah. that work. And the same is true with public transit. So for people to get out of their cars and take the bus, we need public transit that's frequent and cheap. And the only way to do that is to have enough people to make that workable so i mean in some ways these these things really do go together for sure for sure cool well um so let's see you talked about uh using better if 
making better use of the housing that we have now. Uh, yeah, what right. else? What else do you have? No, look, and then the other side of that is, is building new places for people to live. Yeah. So, I mean, the National Sierra Club has said the single most important thing we can do for the environment is um, careful infill development. So, in other words, looking at empty lots in urban areas and and building multifamily housing there. Uh, so, so multi-housing multi-family housing can mean things like duplexes and triplexes and fourplexes. Uh, we have plenty of space in Boulder where we can build more, but the problem is our current planning processes take years to a decade to build anything. So you look at a place like Alpine Balsam, yeah. okay, and then the city bought the hospital in 2015, and we are nowhere near allowing anyone to live there. And if we, if we get this done to the end of this decade, and families move in that'll be impressive i would just say dis scale. despite all the cool uh schematas i've seen where you walk through the right the neighborhood it looks awesome i'm ready to you know sign me up you know but. see okay i agree it looks great <laughs> and the thing is if we had built in 2015 a baby could have been born and grown up before actually any shovel will ever well. yeah. right before any shovel hit the dirt and to me that's tragic i mean I think when, when I think of when I talk about Boulder being for all of us, I'm talking about not just thinking about the people who are here. I'm talking yeah. about the people we've shut out. And yeah. today we are shutting people out of Alpine, Alpine Balsam by not having built that out two, three, four years ago. Yeah. Today we're shutting people out of the old People's Clinic building at the corner of Iris and Broadway where there was a proposal to build there and it got shut down. And that's families that could have lived there and raised kids there. and had great lives and thrived in Boulder. Yeah. And so we need to look at the opportunity cost of spending a decade to approve a development project. We can do a lot better and it would make a big difference. Well, I, I appreciate the way you frame that because a lot of people go straight to what I think is a red herring, which is like the height limits. Oh, well, you know, we're, we'll always argue about the height limits. And it's like, no, that's, you know, you don't go from like 85% single family housing straight to like, 55 foot buildings everywhere you know right that, i mean sure you could perhaps have some really dense housing right downtown that would be affected by a 55 foot height limit but to me that's not really the solution like the solution is like about infill all over the city i i agree i mean no one is proposing that you know no one's proposing getting rid of the height limits and there's no need to we're just yeah. not at a point where that's a conversation. You know, I heard someone say the other day, oh, if you want to allow more people to live in Boulder, we'd have to build out our open space. I mean, that's ridiculous. We don't, you know, so I wouldn't support that. And uh, there's no need, there are plenty of spaces. There, when, As you say, when 85% of the city is zoned for single family houses, you know, there's room to do more on the lots that we have. Do you have any thoughts about asphalt? and how much there is in this city. I do. You know, it's interesting. I've been um, seeing pictures of cities in, in Europe, including Paris, where there's a there's an effort to reclaim public space. So my office is at, at Ninth and Walnut. And, nice. you know, I saw um, Pearl Street get closed between Ninth and 11th. And I saw how happy people are in the evenings strolling up and down that street. I mean, we have created out of necessity from COVID, we've just created a thriving public space. 
you know, I heard this week city council and city staff were talking about when that should end, and I don't see why it should end. I think what we could do is rip up some of the asphalt, extend the mall that way, and um, you know, just recognize we stumbled into something great on that space. There's space on the hill that's similar. There's a block that's closed off there with restaurants where, again, people enjoy having walkable space. So the mall was built decades ago, and thank you to the people who did that. This generation now has an opportunity to, to double or triple that size for closed streets, you know, very quickly based on our COVID experience. Yeah, I, I can imagine um, an entire pedestrian district downtown where, where cars are sort of relegated to the fringes. Um, well, but, yeah, I mean, just on that, and I mean, interrupt, but it's um, downtown small. Yeah. You know, so <laughs> it's, we're not talking about people having to walk terribly far. I can imagine that too. Uh, and it would be just a joy. The same way people are happy when they go to the Pearl Street Mall, they could be happy walking on the blocks around there. And That's the right. truth is no one likes driving there anyway. It's, um, <laughs> it's just a pain. It's, it's actually, just difficult. It's actually way, way easier to bike downtown. Exactly. But you yeah. know what there's not downtown is a great street to bike east-west. True. You know, because I bike downtown a lot. And yeah. it's a little scary whether you're on Spruce or Pine, Walnut, one way the other yeah. way that's it's not terrible but it's um let's call it somewhat frightening <laughs> so you know there's the boulder creek path that's all the way on the far side of canyon but no we we actually could use some bikeways downtown too definitely definitely cool well do you have any do you have any more thoughts about housing uh i mean i think those are the the big yeah. picture goals yeah great um so that that's kind of a nice segue into uh uh, maybe let's just sort of close the loop on transportation a yeah, bit more. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so give us a, a positive vision for yeah. uh, what you would, how, what you have, what you'd like Boulder to do about transportation. Yeah, and I'm glad we started with housing because, like I said, with more people living a little closer together, turning skyscrapers, but just moderate improvements there, it makes public transit much more viable yeah. for our city. And I think we need a bus network that's fast and inexpensive. So, you know, I lived in Washington, D.C. It has a great public transit network. I lived in Philadelphia, that's where I yeah. grew up. You know, great public transit network. And it's great because it doesn't take much more time to take the bus or there to take the subway than it does to drive and park. Uh, for Boulder, we need that, and we're, we're nowhere near that. So actually, frankly, when I moved here, I hadn't my wife and I had owned one car for years, and when I moved here, it just seemed unworkable yeah. to just have one car. I think now, you know, we're rethinking how we're living. My wife just got an e-bike. I was saying, you know, I'm looking at getting an e-bike. So I think cool. maybe it's possible, but we need to make it easy for people. And yeah. that means transit. It also means our bike infrastructure needs to get a lot better. So, you know, Boulder's bike paths are really, wonderful. I mean, they're fun to bike on, they're um, efficient, but we also need bike lanes on streets. And the thing right now is it's frightening for a lot of people to bike on streets. And that's because we don't have protected bike lanes. So there seem like some pretty clear candidates like 19th Street and 30th Street and Arapaho. 
uh, and Pearl heading east, where protected bike lanes would make uh, a huge My personal difference. favorite would be uh, Table Mesa. Right, is, okay. Is, uh, I'm always deciding whether to cut straight through on Table Mesa and save a few minutes or go down to the Bear Creek bike path. But. No, and that's right. And, you know, you're someone who's confident on a bike, right? Like, <laughs> you know, when yeah. we talk about someone who's more of an occasional rider or who has children yeah. with them, yeah. you know, we want those people to feel safe. So y you need protected bike lanes to make that work. So um, this summer, we've seen uh, just a, a um, heartbreaking number of bike fatalities in the Boulder area. And a lot of that's not in the city, it's around the city. But, you know, each one of those is like a dagger. Yeah. And um, we can and should do better. Well, and it adds to the the, ca the risk calculation of am I gonna am I gonna increase the amount of biking I do to go places, um, or am I afraid of all the big trucks and right and uh, drivers on the road? No. So my wife works in Longmont for Boulder County <clears throat> okay. Public Health. She has an e-bike. She loves to e-bike to work, but right now there's not a great way. No. to get there and you can bike on the diagonal but it's not fun biking on what's essentially it's a, it's a, a freeway I've, I've done it quite right. a number of times and uh you know there is this plan that's not funded to build a bike path uh, mostly i think in the middle uh, of the diagonal and mm -hmm. that would make a huge difference and that's something the city should be advocating for i'll tell you the traffic into town from longmont has gotten really terrible both on the diagonal and then coming down north broadway is that is that true like right now this month and i work from home so i don't really pay attention to the the traffic uh coming in and out yeah the traffic's back i mean yeah okay. I, there was a time during covid when it wasn't but yeah no the traffic is rough um you know i hear my wife talks about it because she's driving out of town so she's essentially reverse commuting yeah but yeah and Making that bike, way, making that a, a viable bikeway for people that's direct. It's not that far, and particularly with e-bikes, yep. it's an easy ride. That's right. Cool. Oh, what I wanted to say is that, um, you know, I think, um, and this kind of ties in together, like bedrooms are for people, and the housing um, things that you mentioned, and transportation, and, and that is, I think there's actually a market for young people to move into town without a car. Like, I, I know personally a bunch of people that don't have a car and live in town right. and can do everything they need to with with their bike or just walking. And um, uh, I think, uh, you know, people who are serious about climate change are really looking for that. Like, and so, um, and I'm looking, I, I'm actually looking for that. I, I, right. um, I, we own one, my family, we own one car and um, I bike everywhere and, uh, well, my, my wife and kids, they, they also bike everywhere, but we do, we do have a car and we right. use it frequently. Um, but, um, you know, like, like thinking about what kind of housing we want in the future or, or just, you know, the demographic I just mentioned, um, I think we ought to really anticipate the people who are serious about climate change and, right. don't, and, and want to have housing options that don't require them to have a car. Well, I think... I think you raise a, a great issue. So, you know, a few thoughts about it. One is the climate benefits, and the other is the economic benefits of not having a car. So it's just a lot less expensive. So if you want to make Boulder work for you and you're not super wealthy, not having a car is, is a good strategy. You know, um, 
when we were talking about housing, one thing we didn't talk about are restrictions or rules like, like parking minimums. And I think a lot of people don't understand how this works. So if you're going to build multifamily housing in Boulder, Boulder requires you to have a certain number of parking spaces per bedroom. Yeah. Boulder, which says that we want to be a leader <laughs> on climate. Yeah. You know, we insist, insist that you build parking spots for cars if you want to if you want to build bedrooms for people. And that's crazy because there are people who want to live in communities with no cars or fewer cars and water view. So there was a development that actually just got approved on Arapaho, mm -hmm. um, you know, on East Arapaho. And the developer said, you know, we're designing this for people who don't want to have a car lifestyle. They I mean, they want to jump on the jump and they want to bike on the bike. Exactly. And, yeah. And the city insisted they build a, a parking structure, mm. which they're doing, but the architects were clever enough to design it so that if the city ever changes its rules, they can <laughs> deconstruct that parking deck okay. and put additional housing there. So is, I, I thought that, that was good. forward thinking, but yeah. Well, um, I mean, a couple of thoughts that come to mind when you say that is, uh, one issue is just the, the the extreme cost of a per parking spot, especially, you know, if we're going to build infill, um, that means we're not going to have giant driveways in front of the, the multifamily, you know, in, infill right. projects that we do. Uh, we, the, you know, a lot of those, if you're going to have parking requirements, parking minimums, they're going to have to go underground. And the cost of underground parking is really astronomical. Um, I've, I've heard like quotes of like 50,000 per spot, which yeah. like if you just think about the cost of, you know, if you want to have modestly priced condos on the market, right? adding $50,000 to a modestly priced condo is like, that's, that's a huge expense that someone has to pay. And it's, you know, it, yeah. yeah. And you know, it's interesting. I mean, I guess having grown up on the East Coast in a city that was built you know, a lot of it was built in the late 1800s and early 1900s, and then living in Washington that really sort of grew up in the 20s and 30s and 40s. Living in neighborhoods that were designed for people to walk, it is great. I mean, the, where people have front porches and the design of the house is to have you near the sidewalk so you can see and interact with your neighbors. That's a really nice way to live. And it is a little less convenient for your car, but again, there's a trade-off there. You can build great neighborhoods without cars. And, you know, I'm not saying every new development shouldn't be designed to allow cars. If people want to live somewhere where they want to be able to drive their car and park in a parking deck right by where they live, there's going to be a market for that, and they should. But the question to me is, should the city of Boulder require every new development to have a $50,000 or whatever cost parking space associated yeah. with it. Yeah. And I don't see why we don't allow people to pay less and live in a neighborhood where um, they don't Definitely. have to have a car. I, I heard about the um, the property uh, at the at the flower shop uh, there by the Peloton, Freuhoff's mm -hmm. was, was the, right. the name of the shop. Yeah. And uh, there's a senior living um, development going in there that's that's car that's parking restricted and it's going to have a car share and uh, I'm just really excited that's that sort of uh, those sort of ideas are are being um, promoted but I'd love to see a lot more of those around the city where um, you know a, a spot that I always think about because I live in South Boulder is at Baseline and Broadway mm -hmm. where you could build a bunch of housing 
and just and just have an ex a pilot where you said um, this is going to be car light living housing there's going to be car shares and it's going to be for the kind of demographic well it doesn't we don't have to target any right. demographic but um, no. but but you know that the the younger person perhaps uh, sorry that's that's sort of beside the point there are people there are people who want to live in a car light lifestyle right and so um, we ought to have options for those folks right and you know it may be true it's easier for people to do that who aren't um, shuttling kids around to after-school sports and <laughs> things that I did for years and years a lot of those people can also shuttle their kids you know on e-bikes and there are other ways to do it but the fact of the matter is actually as younger generations are having fewer and fewer kids designing thriving places and communities that really aren't <laughs> centered around a, a suburban lifestyle with um, you know everyone driving their own cars yep. and parents feeling the need to drive all the time makes sense. Well I, I'll just say this and that is um, I, I have a friend who lives near me who puts his kids in a minivan, drives to the local school, then drives downtown, parks in a parking structure and um, I, I hop on my bike with kids on the back and, and uh, do the same thing. And like, uh, I just would never trade, trade my commute for his commute, you know, like, right. and, and really like we had to, we had to really just sort of lean into, um, the, the need for, it's not, it's not just better for the climate. It's like, it's pro-social and it's, uh, it's, it's better for your, your mental health and it's, it's easy on the finances. Like, Parking downtown with a bicycle is not expensive. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I mean, I yeah, I, I think it's hard for people to break habits, but yeah. I think when they do, people are often happy. So, you know, Boulder's an interesting town. We have all these athletes who are getting up in the morning and doing something hard. Yeah. Get up at five in the morning and go for a run or, you know, go work out. And people are good about that in town. And even though there's a little pain involved in that, I think, everyone would say, yeah, that makes my life more fulfilled. It, um, yeah. And I find when I'm biking to work a lot, I have that feeling. I just enjoy that even my bike ride down to my office from here is, you know, 10, 15 minutes. But just having that 10 or 15 minutes whizzing through town on my you bike. You notice things. Yeah, it makes one. my yeah. day more bright. And um, if I'm in a rut and not and I'm driving... You know, I don't get that. So I hear what you're saying, that sort of giving people a bit of a push to step out of their normal routine and try these things, I think actually, you know, would make their lives better, as well as, you know, it's necessary for the climate emergency, yeah. you know, as well as it makes things more affordable. I, I have one more sort of, this is kind of a digression, but it's, it, it connects. And that is, um, you were talking about how lovely it is to live in a city that's you know, walkable, in a neighborhood that's walkable. And uh, one of the connections that makes for me is we live in a college town where uh, CU Boulder, the campus, the main campus, is just the most pedestrian-friendly district in town that you can, that you can uh, imagine. And, um, you know, we, we, we tell kids, undergraduates, we give them this, uh, this, this special place to, to spend four years walking around everywhere, biking and skating, skateboarding. Um, and then, then we tell you, oh, uh, sorry, the rest of the city is not like this. And in fact, because it's not, you can't afford to live here, go somewhere else. Right. And, uh, but I think a lot of people that have gone to, you know, like a, a four-year liberal arts college, 
maybe one of the reasons they loved it if they did is because it was like the one time in their life where they actually just like lived in a walkable atmosphere where you right. could just run into people and like have all the serendipity that's involved with um being in compact um neighborhood well and lived with friends yeah. you know that's the thing <laughs> dorm living is fun and then when kids are a little older and they live with two three four five of their friends that's a great way to live. And when I was in my 20s, I was in Washington, D.C. and lived in group houses. Yeah. And it was legal there. We had no <laughs> occupancy limits. It didn't seem to wreck the town. And it was, uh, I wouldn't have traded it for the world. I mean, it was the sort of um, centerpiece of my social life at the time. And, yeah, I don't know why we're so afraid to give that opportunity to people here. Yeah. One more one more thought. I'm sorry. I should yeah. be asking the questions. But... Um, you know, when I think about an ADU going in or a, a single-family home turning into a duplex and or alpine balsam, and when you create those new housing opportunities, um, that you know, it, 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 the, the effect on the climate is not just about getting people closer to, um, to town, but it's also like uh, that buyer of that house, what, what do they buy if they don't have the new have the you know new construction to buy well they they sometimes they drive out to the the sub suburbs yeah on the fringes where we're still expanding rapidly like there's like there's no end to the space we can occupy and um i just i feel like um you know one thing that boulder's done really well is um constrained sprawl right in, in a limited way at least at least kind of in a very local way is what i mean to say yeah we've exacerbated it in places like erie and Louisville and, and surrounding other suburbs um but i think i think um we all have this value that like we shouldn't be sprawling out anymore right and uh that relates to how we like do housing here in boulder right and when we think about who we are as a boulder and we ignore the large numbers of people commuting in from Weld County and Larimer County, we're ignoring the effect that we're having on yeah. our little corner of the world here. Yeah. So, I mean, the 60,000 in commuters are spending, you know, a third or a half of their day in Boulder. They are part of our community. And the only question is whether we all want to require them to, you know, spend an hour and a half a day driving back and forth to Weld County or Greeley or or yeah. Erie or other places. And, you know, I don't. I want to find more ways for more people to live here. And I think we can do so in a way that, you know, maybe it'll somewhat change the character of our neighborhoods, but I think it'll be a change for the better. Well, if we can move towards less car-dominated neighborhoods that are more walkable and bike-friendly, then I think the, the trade-off of having more people, it's actually really nice. Agreed. You know, when I bought my house, one of the first things we did was there was no pathway from the sidewalk to my front door. It was just unbelievable. But the house was built in the late 80s, and that's how <laughs> so they the did The expectations it. you drive in yeah, and exactly. shut the door behind you. And... and several other neighbors have done it too. And, you know, this is a neighborhood where I am, where the neighbors know each other and like each other and talk to each other, but it required intentionality. It required us, yeah. it required us to do little things like changing our walkways, and then to do things like work at it, focus on it. One of our neighbors has a movie night once a week, and nice. we make it a point to swing by so we know each other, and it, it, it makes our community that much more vibrant. Cool.
Well, I think that's a nice way to close off the housing section. I know we um, we also wanted to talk about uh, uh, various issues around equity and diversity and uh, uh, policing yeah. and uh, related issues. So, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, my professional work as a lawyer, one of the things I have focused on is um, civil rights litigation, and that includes uh, cases where it includes cases involving police misconduct, and Boulder is not uh, immune from that. I mean, we have the Zayed Atkinson case, it was just an easy example, where this was a, uh, a college student at Naropa who's black, who was cleaning up trash, he was trash in front of his apartment building. It was his job, was to do a little maintenance work at his apartment building, and he was sitting on a wall with one of those trash pickers, and a police officer just thought he didn't belong and started questioning him and demanding that he provide ID and he got upset about it you know he said why am I being singled out and it was obvious why because he was african-american and you know next thing you knew there were I think about half a dozen cops there it escalates and they're pointing their guns at him and you see the pain that Mr. Atkinson went through that's not a police force that's respecting people's civil rights you know, that's not a police force that looks different from the police force in the cities that we think of as, as much more conservative cities on the front range. So I think the Boulder Police Department has a lot of reforming to do. One thing that's interesting that I saw today about our police department is um, they're having a hard time filling jobs. And in fact, they're losing officers. And one of the reasons I think that's happening is we're asking our police to do the wrong things. So, you know, when someone goes to the police academy, they want to make a difference for their community. And they want to do it by fighting crime. And when we're asking police to fight property crime, bike thefts, car break-ins, um, that's what they're excited to do. And that's what we want them to do. And when we're asking them to prevent and solve violent crime and crimes against people, that's what they want to do. They want to make us safer. But what we're doing here in Boulder is we're also asking the police to solve social services problems. You know, we're asking them to spend a huge amount of time citing people for minor violations if they're unhoused. And that is not what excites a police officer to get up in the morning and do their job. And frankly, it's not what they're good at. Social workers are good at doing social work. Police officers are good at dealing with property crime and crimes against people. And I think if we took some stuff off the police's plate and used social workers for social problems, we'd have more success in terms of managing the social problems, and we'd have a, a happier police force and a, um, a more balanced police force that's focused on what they need to be doing. That's that's great. Um, I was listening to um, a radio program by KGNU called Black Talk. Mm -hmm. which uh, had an episode on, on this issue with uh, you know, mental health and uh, the, the difficulty of um, you know, some of these scenarios where the police kind of come in as, as military ops and, and it can only escalate if there's not complete compliance, which is difficult when someone's having a psychotic episode. You know? And so... Right. I, think, I mean, I was talking to a mom whose son is mentally ill, and 
you know, we were talking about what happens when the police are stopping people excessively because she says, you know, her son will run. I mean, yeah. as much as she tries to explain to him not to, that's what he's going to do. And people get shot running from the police. They get tased running from the police. They get tackled. And, you know, there's a different way to interact with mentally ill people that social workers are trained to do. And, you know, the thing about Boulder is we talk about Boulder as such a progressive, liberal place, but we don't have to invent these solutions on our own because actually other cities are leap years ahead of us doing this sort of thing. And it's time for us just to start looking at best practices. I mean, so we have a new city manager in Boulder who actually has worked in other places that are using more progressive policing strategies and, you know, understanding that we can limit police and role to crime fighting and have social workers do social work. And uh, it, one thing I think city council can do is listen to the really good staff that have been hired in the last few years. Because I, I think we can make these changes. I mean, I think we can get there. But we need a city council that's going to empower these changes. And, you know, maybe I'm going a bit beyond your question, but that's why I'm running. You know, this yeah. is a moment yeah. when we can make that difference. And I'm excited to go try to do it. Yeah, I think I think it's kind of um, ironic or uh, not ironic. It's kind of gives me hope that we actually have a, a city staff that seems to be kind of out in front of city council. Like city council seems to be like, hey, hold, hold your horses and getting in the way. Right. And uh, so I'm excited about um, the possibility of electing a, a slate of progressive candidates and and sort of just being and, and, and then you guys could turn around and be like, go go do your work, do it well. Right. You know, on, on racial equity, the staff put together a really thoughtful analysis of the problems in Boulder. And one of the things they identified was that our, our housing policies have made uh, racial inequity more pronounced, that that we actually have a set of, you know, having 85% of the city zone single family housing and frankly having the green belt around the city has made Boulder the exclusive enclave that it is. And that's not to say we need to go build out the open space. We should not do that. But we should recognize the problem. And when the city staff say we've studied this and, you know, whether people had good intentions or bad intentions, this is the effect of it. You know, that's something that I want to have a city council that listens to that. So is that a is that a report that they that they um, gave the city council or is yeah. that is that embodied in the like when you when you described yeah. that, I was thinking, oh, that sounds like the Boulder Valley Comprehensive Plan. This is but in that's the, something yeah. else. No, that, that is something else. This is in the city. The staff did a draft racial equity plan. And, okay. you know, my understanding was the council was concerned about some of the language that is very specific about are housing policies that have led to racial exclusion in Boulder. And, you know, one of the things the staff pointed out, which I've found in my own studies about the history of Boulder, is our exclusionary living practices here are intentional. We didn't just end up this way accidentally. So in the 10s and 20s and 30s, when the Klan had a huge presence here, there was a decision made to exclude undesirables, as they were call, called at the time. And that was done by keeping industry out of Boulder, which has been relatively successful at eliminating industry from town, and um, having large single-family lots. And that's 
persisted. It's like this living legacy that right. that we, that that is just all around us, and it's had uh, you know intended consequences. I think that's the, the the phrase I like to use when people say, "Oh, these other policies will have unintended consequences." Right. Well, gosh, we we're looking at a situation where there's lots of intended consequences that's that have built up over the decades. Right, and I think people, you know, some people bristle at that because they say, well, if I like the way my neighborhood is zoned, are you calling me a racist? Right. And I mean, I'm not, but I do think we need to recognize how we got where we are. And I do think we need to say, if we want something different, we're going to have to make some changes. There are some trade-offs here. And we're living in a community that is, you know, racially exclusive and has excluded black people and Latino, Latina people and native people. And if we want to change that, you know, we're going to have to change some things that maybe are a little uncomfortable for us. And that's a decision we're making today. Yeah, I, I, uh, I don't want to give a pass to people who want to say they're not racist um, in, the, in the scenario you just described uh, in the following way. Like, um, like if, you, if you don't feel like you have racism, racism in your heart, um, good for you. I, I, I hope that I want to live in a community where people feel like um, they're open to lots of different kinds of people being in their orbit of friends and, and workplace and whatnot. Um, but I, I think, you know, it's kind of the white fragility response to be tone deaf to the racial, the racist structures that, that we live in. And um, I, I just, um, it's not, it's not, to me, it's not a complete accident that it's 85% single-family home zone and 88% white. I mean, I know th- they're, they're correlated. It's not a complete, um, uh, you know, if you draw the Venn diagram or whatever. But, um, uh, like, I, we live in the single-family home zone comes from a racist uh, design, you know, in the 10s, 20s of the last century. And... We never, we never did anything about it. It's all still here, just kind of like it was. And um, we have said, oh, well, you know, anyone can, can move into this, this lovely configuration now. But, you know, we, I don't, I don't know. It's like the, the opportunities that we eliminated from people through things like the GI Bill and, right. and whatnot. It, it's just, um, like, I just... I just want to always push back a bit, or maybe a lot, to, to people who say, well, I'm not racist, even though I like single-family zoning. Right. And I, part of me just wants to say, well, the good news for you is that North America is covered with single-family zoning. <laughs> right. And, and yeah. there's so many options for you. But, you know, if you're um, a person of color without, you know, um, a high-paying six-figure salary, and maybe you want to live in a car light, neighborhood where do, where do you go i mean like right. and if you can't go to boulder uh, it's like i don't know it's like there's um sorry i'm excited <laughs> no i see your point i mean look you know one way to look at racism is there's a conversation that you know white people want to have that racism's what's in my heart yeah but the other way to look at racism is is what you do what the consequences are of your actions yeah. and then we don't really need to talk about what's in your heart we need to talk about what effects you're causing in the world That's right and that's where I think understanding our history makes a difference. You know, so after George Floyd was killed in 2020, one of the things I did was I worked with my law firm to set up a series of panel discussions on the 
history of racial exclusion in Boulder, and you know, I just learned a tremendous amount. Are those that. recorded? We we done the first one. It is recorded. The second oh, cool. one is going to be in um, uh, late October, early November. Well, I'd love and, to watch it myself and yeah. link to it from yeah. from the show notes. No, that would be great. So one of the things I learned is the black community in Boulder, such as it is. IBM was responsible for bringing a lot of black families to Boulder. Mm. And you don't think of IBM as this leader in progressive anything. Yeah. But it made sense when she explained it to me. You know, the, the person I was talking to was uh, with the NAACP of Boulder County, and she was saying, yeah, I mean, it, Boulder's a tough place, and you need big employers to build a diverse community. And we have some big employers now in town. And one question I have is, instead of just hating on Google and um, Apple and the other big tech companies, like maybe we could lean on them to make our community better in the ways that IBM did, you know, for a prior generation. Um, maybe, maybe it'll succeed. Maybe it'll fail. I think it's certainly worth trying. <laughs> I'm not sure I have anything coherent to say about about Google and Apple and my brain sort of goes in, uh, in five directions with that possibility. But um, but look, I mean, that's the thing, right? We're talking about IBM. IBM yeah. was a leader in integrating yeah. Boulder. I mean, that's just a shocking fact. That is interesting. Yeah, I didn't I didn't know that. So I'm excited to to learn more. So so tell me what 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 it's called and so how can I participate? Yeah. So it's uh, a good question. So um, my law firm Sessions and Black and Cook. If you Google us and history of racial exclusion okay. we have online and it's on um, YouTube our first panel we did it in conjunction with CU's law school okay uh, so I think it may be hosted on the law school's website and then we started with the history of exclusion of African Americans from Boulder next session is going to be we're going to look at what happened with the native community uh, and is this something that's happening on campus or it's a Zoom panel? So the first one was sort of in the heart of COVID shutdowns. So we did yeah. it all Zoom. Second one okay. is going to be both in person at the law school and on Zoom. Cool. One of the things we found doing it on Zoom was way more people attended than we ever would have guessed. And one of the things that I really loved about it was, you know, I was hoping we would get 50 or 100 people. And we had 700 people sign Whoa. up for it. You know, so cool. we had five or six who who tuned in, and it was, um, yeah, just an overwhelming interest and response. It really it made me feel heartened that there's a community here that really cares about these issues. And then we'll do a session on Latino Latina exclusion, and then we're going to do a fourth session talking about the future, the road ahead. So you know, we're doing these um, slowly. So we did the first one in February, second one later this fall and then the third one will be over the winter and uh fourth one probably be next summer great I'll, I'll, so we'll, we'll uh yeah i'll have you give me the details uh after this but um so i wanted to uh ask you about the campaign so yeah. how how's the campaign going congratulations on getting your uh matching funds Thank and you. uh yeah. maxing out your contributions yeah. Um, so just tell us tell us a bit about that. You know, it's been a whirlwind. I mean, I'm not someone who 10 years ago decided I wanted to be on Boulder City Council. Yeah. You know, I sort of looked and assessed where the city was and where the opportunities were to have a progressive majority make some changes in town and decided to jump in kind of late. So, 
you know, June, May, June, it's been a whirlwind. Okay. I mean, I've been learning a tremendous <laughs> yeah. amount. I've been meeting with a ton of people and talking to people. Um, it's been also just really gratifying to, un you can lose sight of the fact that there are a lot of people in Boulder who really care about progressive values and, yeah. and really want to make a difference. Yeah. And um, it's been just really fun to build out a campaign team. You know, with our fundraising, basically the system here is you raise $11,000, you can't get more than $100 per person, and then the city matches it. So then you have a, a spending cap that's just under $22,000. And, um, you know, raising money wasn't something I thought I'd want to do, but getting Turned on the phone... that to be fun, I Yeah, guess. right. <laughs> I mean, look, you know, I called so many people I didn't talk to in so long, and it yeah. was just really... Nice to reconnect so, with so people. So, did you have eleven thousand divided by a hundred eleven, a hundred and ten donors? Or did you have a bunch of donors? We had we had more than a hundred ten. We had maybe a hundred fifty. Okay. Um, I don't have the exact count. So, a lot of the donations were in a hundred dollar yeah. increments, and then yeah. some were twenty five or fifty dollars. Yeah. I guess I guess it's such a it's such a small amount of money that you you don't really you can't do the Bernie Sanders thing exactly. Where you say, I had millions of five dollar donors or whatever. Right. I mean, for federal elections, I, I don't know what the exact limit is, but it's like 2500 bucks or something. Yeah. I mean, it's different when you're raising it in, in $100 increments. Yeah. That's like, you know, a dinner for two at a Boulder restaurant. Yeah, yeah exactly. So. Well, and I didn't know that uh, the city matched the funds. So you have $22,000 right. to, to spend it on. Yeah. Um, what, what do you spend it on? I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I no, it's a good I question. I don't actually know. <laughs> because I was asking people, I mean, is that enough? This wasn't something yeah. I'd planned on doing forever, so I didn't yeah. really have a good sense of that. So um, yard signs, apparently yeah. that's still important to yep. go print a ton of Oh, do you have one here? Paper? I do. Oh, I yeah, I'm happy to okay. um, give you one. <laughs> is that, I guess that's an implicit endorsement. Yeah, right, I'll be putting exactly. his yard sign in my, right. in my front yard. <laughs> you know, we got stickers, which are yeah. super fun, not a huge expense. Uh, so you need to print literature. Yeah. So there'll be um, literature put on 35,000 people's, you know, doorsteps or in their door, multifamily. Uh, and then advertising yeah. takes money, you know, through the daily camera. So... It's it's not a lot. The twenty two thousand. Yeah, it goes quick. I'm sure. Yeah. Do you have paid staff? Oh, no, you couldn't possibly yeah, yeah, have paid right. staff. Yeah. So I have a you know a group of volunteers. <laughs> I have some people younger than me who know how to make who's social your, media. Who's your work. campaign manager? My wife is uh, doing my campaign oh, wow. manager role. So her oh. name's Mary Faltinsky. She um, she's been just hugely supportive which has been really yeah, fun. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense that she would be supportive if she's, you know, yeah. uh, helping you with the campaign. That's, right. That's cool. And then wow. my treasurer is a neighbor who was in, uh, did engineering work, is, you know, okay. incredibly meticulous. So all the finances are properly being accounted. And then I have a campaign strategist named uh, Liz Morasco, who's done a lot of stuff mm -hmm. with, um, federal elections and statewide elections and then a guy named nick grossman who's doing social media yeah yeah cool. so I know nick. that's the team great oh that's a great team i uh i think your your odds are very good i guess you won't be doing any uh professional polling to find out <laughs> yeah right <laughs> no. i guess you just find out on on, the, on november 2nd or whenever it is yeah. That's true, but there was a poll early this summer, not about specific candidates, but mm -hmm. about issues in Boulder, and it was interesting. So half of the people in Boulder are renters, half aren't. Um, but in terms of who votes, you know, homeowners vote a lot more than yeah. renters in Boulder. 
But this survey was interesting. It surveyed registered voters, and it found, like with Bedrooms Are For People, about 75% support. Wow. And on progressive issues, it found it progressive issues pulled well here. I mean, it was really heartening. What it said to me is, if we can get the voter pool to look more like the composition of Boulder, um, we can have a progressive city council. And really, the game here is, is getting people out to vote who are infrequent voters. So, you know, vote. It's critical. Vote. It's critical. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I know um, I've lived here a long time, and it, it, it's taken me a long time to care about local politics and to actually pay enough attention to know who to vote for. And I know that a few times I've just sort of looked at the flyers and went online and played around for 10, 15 minutes and, you know, made my decision based on what people were saying. And um, one of the problems with that is um, everyone's kind of, sort of kind of saying the same thing. Yeah. But, and so, you, and so it's, if you're not clued in to what the, the small variations actually mean when, it, when the rubber hits the road, right. um, uh, that can be difficult to, 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 to see through. So I, one, one thing I really appreciate your candidacy, along with the rest of the, the, the folks in the, um, the press the, endorsed by the Progressive Coalition, is that there's just very plain spoken uh, addressing of the issues and, and uh, in a way that I feel like wasn't really strong before, like in terms of like leading off with housing and what we need to do differently. And, right. and I feel like in the past, it's always been sort of coded language that says, uh, you know, we're not gonna, we're not gonna really talk about single-family zoning. We're gonna sort of like, right, um, maybe we'll build in transit corridors. Yeah. Or, right. I think that's right. I think for years the strategy was, um, don't make waves. Tell people you're a balanced thinker. You consider all sides. Which I mean, those are important things to for be. Sure but not really you know give much on specific issues and i actually think this year is shaping up to be a different you know on um on what to do with um unhoused people sleeping by the creek i mean there are two very clear philosophies among the candidates you know one is my philosophy and the people on the slate i think pretty much as a group i mean our belief is that for the last year boulder has tried one strategy which is policing, citing people and clearing camps, and the strategy's failed. The police chief has said we have as many people living outside unhoused today as we had a year ago. And there are a group of candidates who want to double down on that strategy. And they say what we need to do is more sweeps, more money for police. And then the other approach is to say, look, we should not have people sleeping by the creek. I mean, this is where everyone does say the same thing. And everyone agrees yeah. that having people living by the creek, having people live in bicycle underpasses is not a good idea. It's not something. But what the four of us who the progressive endorse are saying is, let's look at evidence-based solutions that work. And in this case, there's a nice um, alignment between what's humane to do and what's actually effective and the way to get people to not live outside is to give them assisted housing and to open up the shelter to people who have lived in boulder for less than six months to have day shelter space to have safe camping and to have safe parking so that if you're going to tell someone not to live by the creek there's somewhere for them to go 
that's a very different approach. And I, so I think this issue more than any is one where we all agree on the goal, which is don't have people living in our public places, but we have di very different strategies to get there. And I think, you know, as I say, ours is based on evidence. Um, ours looks at what works. It's not just an angry reaction to what's happening. And the other one of, you know, more money for police to do social services, it's failed for the last year and, you know, I don't think it's going to work moving forward, but we do have four or five candidates who want to double down on that strategy. Well, I hope they don't get elected. Well, what can I say? You know. I mean, that uh, that uh, we had uh, Jen Livovich on, on the podcast uh, last week, and um, I learned a lot about homelessness from her. It's not something I've spent a lot of time studying. It's really um, uh, heartening for me to hear you articulate um, what sound like effective strategies yeah. I, don't, I, uh, but I don't I don't have any I don't have much else to add to what you said it sounds yeah it sounds like it makes it, it seems very sensible to me I mean I've sat down with Jen too and okay. she's doing something just really um, moving for our community you know yeah. she was homeless I mean she yeah. talked about that with you and um, she's looking at really effective ways coming from a place of kindness that's actually making a huge difference in people's lives. So I was glad to see you interviewed her. And yeah, you know, I think the more we talk with people about what she's doing, the better. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Um, I think so we covered a I lot. Think, I think we yeah. covered a lot. It's been, it's been uh, really enjoyable listening yeah. to you. I have to say, um, you don't strike me as someone I would imagine seeing um, uh, waving a flag from the top of a Cadillac in the, in the, in the front of a, a parade, you know, right. like, like you don't strike me as a top hat sort yeah, of politician right. kind of guy, but, uh, I'm really excited about the possibility of you being on city council next year. I appreciate and, it. And, um, well, uh, do you have any, uh, parting thoughts? Yeah. You know, um, what I've been telling people about my campaign is, you know, if I'm on city council, I'm going to have three guiding principles for decisions. You know, one is, does it make it easier or harder to live, work, and play in Boulder? Number two is, does it promote racial equity and social justice? And number three is, does it address the climate emergency? Those are the things I want to tackle. It's a lot, but uh, it's doable. And, and that's going to be my philosophy if I'm on council. Awesome. This episode of Sharing Boulder was produced by David Adamson and Philip Ogren. Sound and video editing was done by Philip Ogren. The intro music was sampled from Osladum by Gilberto Gill and is available for use under the Creative Commons Sampling Plus license. Please visit us at sharingboulder.us for show notes and previous episodes. If you enjoy this podcast, please support us by sharing this episode with your friends and family. Keep sharing, Boulder.